0: Let's pray.
1: Dear Father, we thank you for the privilege it is that we can come and worship together as your people. We pray as we come to look now at your word, may you help us to recognise that it is the living word, that it is the true word and righteous word, because it comes from you. The one perfect, holy and righteous God. Help us by the power of your spirit to submit to your word in all things each and every day father I pray as we uh, we look through uh, this passage today that you would uh, give us all great wisdom and understanding and patience and grace that we would uh, be able to hear it clearly and that it would be able to be applied in our lives we thank you that you have not kept yourself hidden from us but by your grace you have revealed yourself through your son and through the written word. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We hear a lot today about the love of God. Uh, In the last few years, uh, Rob Bell, famous author, he uh, put out a book entitled Love Wins, uh, which had a subheading, a book about heaven, hell and the fate of every person who ever lived. It was essentially a proclamation uh, that the church had misunderstood the biblical message for all these years. Apparently, it's not about how sinful people are made right with the holy God through faith and the atoning death of Christ and his resurrection, and that if people don't repent and believe, then they'll end up in hell. No, that's not what the Bible is about. According to Bell, that is, and I quote, misguided and toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. The premise of his book really boils down to suggesting that every person has actually been called into the love of God. But for some of us, it just takes a little bit longer to realise it. Listen to his final words to readers. I quote, May you experience this vast, expansive, infinite, indestructible love that has been yours all along. End quote. And he's writing to Christians and non-Christians there. The problem with this thinking is that it singles out certain of God's attributes to the exclusion of others. Yes, God is love, But God is also holy. And so we are to recognise that God's love is actually holy love. It is a love that does not tolerate sin. And it is a love uh, that yet otherwise acts mercifully in dealing with sin through the cross of Christ. If we discard the holiness of God and thus his righteous indignation against sin, then we disparage the true nature of his love. And we end up with saying people can just do as they please because God isn't really concerned with how they live their lives as long as they are happy and as long as they feel loved. You can see that progression in the teaching of Rob Bell. In 2011, he wrote Love Wins... But then a few years later in 2015, he and his wife were promoting their new book about marriage on the Oprah Winfrey show and declaring, and I quote, Marriage, both gay and straight, is a gift to the world because the world needs more, not less love, fidelity, commitment, devotion and sacrifice. End quote. This is where you end up if you forget the holiness of God. Theologian R.C. Sproul states that holiness has two distinct meanings. Firstly, it means otherness, or being set apart. And secondly, it means pure and righteous actions. So what does it mean that God is holy? It means that he stands alone. He alone is supremely God and supremely perfect, and there is no other. And while salvation is through faith in the righteous work of Christ, God's people are nonetheless called to live a life in reflection of God's holiness, of his moral purity. Now, one of the greatest books that teaches us about this characteristic of God is the Old Testament book, Leviticus. The refrain that echoes numerous times throughout its pages is, Be holy! because I am holy. Now, as a book, uh, Leviticus breaks down into essentially two sections. The first 16 chapters refers to the laws of the tabernacle, and the following chapters refer to laws of the community. Indeed, the second section is generally referred to as the holiness code. Now, God's people were not holy in themselves, but because of their relationship to God. They were separated from the world and separated to God. But how relevant is Leviticus for us today? I mean it's in the old testament we don't need that anymore, right? Well, that whole love thy neighbor thing that we're so fond of, that comes from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. And remember that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful So while Moses wrote these words down, it was the Holy Spirit sovereignly guiding what was written. And so we would be careful to pay close attention. Of course, we do need to interpret each passage of Leviticus in context and also interpret the book of Leviticus in the context of salvation history, uh, that it was written to a particular people and at a particular time. That is, before the arrival of the Messiah. So what did it mean for the Israelites to live as the people of holy God? And what does it mean for us as Christians to do the same? In particular, today, we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 18, where God outlines what is unacceptable behaviour for his people when it comes to relationships. So... If you'll please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18, and we're going to begin by reading the first five verses. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So what does it mean to live as the people of holy God? Well, firstly, it means listening to holy God. Verses 1 to 5 that we just read. Now, it wasn't, as some suggest, and you'll hear this, uh, that the words of Leviticus are the Israelites trying their best to interpret how to live for God. They were trying to discern for themselves how best to live. No, that wasn't the case. It was God explaining to them what he required of them. Listen to verses 1 and 2 again. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I... In the Lord your God. In fact, Leviticus could easily be seen as the book spoken by God. Uh, here's just a couple of examples. chapter 1, verse one, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Chapter 4 verse 1 and the Lord spoke to Moses. verse 14 the Lord spoke to Moses 6 verse 1 the Lord spoke to Moses and on and on and on it goes so the book of Leviticus is not an attempt by the people to try and figure out what God wants no Leviticus is God clearly spelling out things to his people as to what he wants and so we'd better listen carefully And what does God want from his people? Well, in verses 3 to 5, God says that he wants his people to obey his commands and not live like the other nations. Now, before we look at the laws that God sets out in this chapter, I want to ask, how do we actually understand these laws? And do they actually apply to us now? Uh, John Piper a well-known US pastor and theologian, he gives the following illustration, which I think is a very helpful start for us. So let me quote him. He says, "'Suppose a book is written for the military, and in chapter one it deals with how soldiers should relate to each other during basic training stateside. Chapter two deals with how soldiers should relate to each other and to their captured enemies on the battlefield.'" Chapter 3 deals with how soldiers should relate to each other and to their captors if any of them is taken captive and imprisoned. And the fourth chapter deals with how they should relate to each other and to the enemy if they are infiltrated behind enemy lines. Would anyone accuse a soldier of disobedience if while he is captured as a prisoner of war, he obeys the instructions in chapter 3 rather than the instructions in chapter 1? Well, no, nobody would. That is the way the book intends to be used, end quote. So we have the same thing, in a sense, with the Bible. We need to understand that the Bible is a book made of many books and yet ultimately tells the one story. And each time we read the Bible, each time we open it up, uh, we need to understand which part of the story we are reading to understand how it actually applies to us Today. So think of these words from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus declares Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law is fulfilled by Christ, and as such, we, living on this side of the cross, are not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant. The law is not abolished but it is fulfilled. It's still good because it comes from God. The law is holy and and righteous and good. But we must interpret everything in the light of the new covenant. And So here are a a couple of pointers, several pointers for us uh, to recognize when we open up the pages of the Old Testament. So number one, we need to understand that the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice. We don't need to offer the blood of bulls and goats anymore Uh, but all the teaching about the sacrificial system is still extremely helpful because it shines a light on what Christ has done. It shines a light on how God thinks about sin. He explains the sinfulness of sin. Number two, we need to understand that Clean and unclean categories in the Old Testament become moral categories in the New Testament. These laws about clean and unclean have been fulfilled in Christ as well, for they point to what Christ has done through the forgiveness of sin. We've been made clean spiritually through faith. Now, recognising this removes the arguments people bring that You know, you can't take Leviticus seriously because people now eat shellfish, which is prohibited in Leviticus 11 verses 9 to 12. And it uh, removes the arguments that people bring that you can't take Leviticus seriously because people wear clothes made of two different kinds of materials, which is prohibited in Leviticus 19.19. While those things still teach us about the nature of God and the nature of our holiness... They don't physically apply to us anymore. Number three, we need to understand that the people of God are not one ethnic nation anymore. It means that the laws that came under the theocracy, uh, where God was the king and the Israelite nation, uh, they don't actually uh, necessarily apply to Christians today. Because Christians come from all nations, do we not? Both Jew and Gentile. Uh, We are now bound uh, by the laws of our own nations. Uh, For example, what's legally permissible for Christians in Australia uh, may not be so for Christians living in the US. Uh, We're not under the theocracy anymore. Recognising this removes arguments people bring that you can't take Leviticus seriously because people today charge interest On their loans, which is prohibited in Leviticus 25, verse 35 to 38. Again, while this teaches us about the nature of God and indeed about how we should treat others, it does not physically apply to us today. And number four, we need to understand that if a law is restated in the New Testament, that's a pretty clear indication that it's still valid. Um... Leviticus is very relevant to us because the New Testament writers quote from it, especially when they're making a point about holiness. And so does Jesus when he's making a point about holiness. Listen to these words in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 to 23, where Jesus declared, "'What comes out of a person is what defiles him. "'For from within, out of the heart of man, "'come evil thoughts,' Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now the word translated sexual immorality in verse 21 is porneia, which is obviously where we get the English word pornography from. But porneia is a blanket word for sexual immorality, for sexual sin. It encompasses every aspect that differs from sexual relations within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. So that would include things such as premarital sex and cohabitation, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, lust. All of this is sexual immorality and sinful. Within the first century Jewish circles, Pornea was also a shorthand reference to Leviticus chapter 18. It was known as the Pornea Code. Now regarding chapter 18 of Leviticus, we need to see that Jesus restated this himself. As such, we need to take Leviticus eighteen very seriously. Now he didn't need to speak Uh, of every individual sin listed there, he just referred to the whole chapter. And once again, the, the trump card that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality is far less powerful than it may first appear. So, as with the Israelites, we are to listen to holy God. But then the text explains what it is to live with holy God. number two, living with holy God. And this is verses 6 to 23. Well, what does it look like to live with a holy God? Well, since Moses wrote the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, his foundation for relationships is Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where God had designed that sexual intimacy was solely within the confines of a marriage covenant. Again, a covenant between one man and one woman. So another way of phrasing this is, well, what should the lives of God's people not look like? And so here we find quite an extensive list. Number one, there should be no incest. Verse six uh, provides the principle and then is followed by verses 7 to 18 with examples of how that principle uh, is applied. So let me read verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Now, of course, we realize that all of humanity is related because we all stem from Adam and Eve, our first parents. But the prohibition is against close relations and so we see a list in verses 7 to 18 of those to whom it is inappropriate to form an intimate relationship with we don't need to read through all of those you'll get the general gist so no incest number two among god's people there should be no uncleanness Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Now, this prohibition goes back to Leviticus chapter 15, in which the whole chapter deals with bodily discharges that cause uncleanness. Now, it's important for us to understand that while all sin makes a person unclean, not all uncleanness is sinful. Now, the importance of cleanness in the Old Testament had to do with the fact that God was physically, not in bodily form, but physically present with his people in the tabernacle and later the temple. Now, this changes in the New Testament because God becomes present with his people through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so the purity of the people needs to function on the same degree as the presence of God. If God is physically present, in a sense, not bodily, but physically there, the people must be physically clean. If God is spiritually present, the people must be spiritually clean. Hear what the Apostle Peter says to believers in 1 Peter 1 verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The ritual procedures for physical purity do not come through into the New Testament. However, purity of heart does. So how does this prohibition apply to us today? Well, Kevin DeYoung, uh, another US pastor, uh, he writes, cleanness still matters in the New Testament, but it becomes an exclusively moral category instead of a ritual one. So this Physical prohibition now becomes a moral prohibition to refrain from whatever sexual activity makes your heart unclean. So that's number two. Number three, no adultery. Verse 20, And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbour's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. Of course, we know that Adultery is expressly forbidden in the Old Testament, the seventh commandment, and then again throughout the New Testament. And as such, we don't need to press the issue uh, any further now, except to highlight that the phrase contains the Hebrew word uh, zera, which refers to descendants or seed. So as uh, Old Testament scholar Katie Smith points out, the command is against giving seed in sexual intercourse to a neighbour's wife. Now this is important to know because it provides a link to the next verse, which on first glance might seem a bit out of place. So number four, no infanticide. Verse 21, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God, I am The Lord. Now, in verse 20, the prohibition is about a man misusing his seed by giving it to someone else other than his wife. Well, here, the prohibition is also connected to a man misusing his seed, that is, by sacrificing his children, that is, his fully grown seed, to a false God. It not only breaks God's express declaration that life is precious and should not be taken through murder, but it also breaks God's express declaration that he alone is to be worshipped. The great lesson that Christians learn from this injunction is that our children are precious gifts from God, whom we are to dedicate to God alone raising them to know his precious name. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Furthermore, this is a verse that adds to the, de- the abortion debate. For whether a child was sacrificed centuries ago, Uh, in offer to a false god or, or whether a child in the womb was killed today under the guise of it being a mother's right, both instances are bowing to the idols of the age and failing to acknowledge the authority and the commands of holy creator God. And we come to number five. No homosexuality verse 22 you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination Now that seems pretty straightforward doesn't it in light of the Bible's clear teaching that sexual intimacy should only occur in the covenant of marriage sex between two people of the same gender is obviously forbidden but here, As in the other passages of scripture that we've looked at and will look at concerning homosexuality, people have tried various ways to revise the plain meaning of the text. So here are two. Number one, uh, this verse it suggested uh, prohibits the misuse of male seed. So just like verses 20 and 21 spoke against that, it's proposed that this is the concern right here too. And why is that? Well, because the Israelites, so goes the argument, the Israelites were living in a hostile land and they needed to grow and preserve the tribe in order to survive. And so anyone caught doing anything that was uh, hinder—that would hinder the growth of this tribe was being selfish and causing harm to the wider group. Interestingly, to give strength to this position, uh, they also suggest that the prohibition in verse 19 against lying with a menstruating woman is also about the misuse of male seed, suggesting that the Israelites had worked out that if you had sexual relations with a menstruating woman, then she's not going to fall pregnant, and thus that too would not grow the tribe. But this interpretation does not stand at all. First of all, we've already shown that verse 19 has to do with uncleanness, which is explained very clearly in Leviticus 15. It has absolutely nothing to do with procreation. And second, the only two references to seed in Leviticus are found in the two verses we've just previously looked at concerning adultery in verse 20 and infanticide in verse 21. And in those instances, again, the prohibition had nothing to do with procreation, but everything to do with holiness. It was a prohibition against a man's seed being given to someone other than his wife. Uh, Firstly, to another woman. Secondly, to an idol. And here, if the concept of seed was even present, uh, it would prohibit him from giving his seed to another man. Now, the context alone shows that it has nothing to do with procreation and everything to do with holiness. If we just look back to verse 4, God declares, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. It has to do with imitating our holy God. So that's the first revising of the text. The second revising of the text that we find Uh, is that it's proposed this verse is actually ignorant of loving homosexual relationships. It's proposed that the Israelites were just not aware that caring homosexual relationships could exist. But again, this interpretation doesn't stand up either. Uh, The word for man uh, is literally male. And so there's no differentiation in age or circumstances and thus no situation where an exemption would be considered valid. Furthermore, none of the other prohibitions listed in Leviticus 18 have clarifications on them, so why would we think that there should be for this verse? The Bible is abundantly clear that homosexuality is a move away from God's design, and this is affirmed throughout the Old Testament and reaffirmed within the New Testament. Now, while we should always be gentle and respectful when speaking with anyone, uh, despite the claims of our culture which say to speak against uh, this issue is, is unloving, it's actually hate speech, well, despite that, it is actually unloving not to call people back to God and to his design for relationships. Number six. No bestiality. Verse 23. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. And here we go even further away from God's design. In Genesis 2, we're told that no suitable helper could be found for Adam from the animal kingdom. And so God made... Eve from Adam's own rib, from his own substance. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, Adam declared when he first laid eyes on Eve. Despite what evolutionary scientists tell us, humans are distinct from animals. God has designed it that way. And it is sinful for us to ignore what he has set in place. So we've heard that we need to Listen to holy God. We've seen what it looks like to live with holy God. And finally, we need to recognise that we are liable to holy God. Verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Firstly, the nations are liable to holy God. The actions that God was prohibiting the Israelites from carrying out were the same actions that the nations of the land were committing. This was the reason why God was actually casting the nations out from the land in the first place. Listen to verses 24 to 25. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants." people of Canaan were not innocent and God in his holiness was judging them. It reminds us that God in his holiness will also finally judge this world through his son. In John 5.22, Jesus declared, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. But it's not just the nations as a whole who are liable. Secondly, God's people are liable to holy God. People of Israel would also be judged if they acted in such a manner as the nations of the land. God said, keep my statutes, verse 28, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people, So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now there were varying levels of what it meant to be cut off from their people depending on the circumstances. From being excluded from the community to execution. Leviticus 20, we are given a list of the consequences for many different actions. In fact, one of the objections that people raise to reading and applying Leviticus is that in chapter 20 verse 13 it's stated that if homosexual behavior is discovered then both partners must be put to death. The objection is stated that if if we agree that we disagree with homosexuality today then we should be true to God's word and go ahead and order their execution. But to correctly understand how all this applies today, we need to recognise that believers are now under the new covenant through Jesus Christ. And as it happens, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we get a clear example of how things now work. In that chapter, the Apostle Paul raises the issue of a man sleeping with his father's wife. Leviticus 20 verse 11, God speaks of this exact situation. And declares that both the man and the woman should be put to death. But what does Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, now say? 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4-5 When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. God's people are still liable to holy God. But if they behave in manners that do not reflect his holiness, they are not to be executed anymore, but excommunicated. They are to be excluded from God's people in the hopes that they will feel the weight of their sin and come back to God in repentance. The wonder of the new covenant that God has brought into place through his son, is that it is Christ who fulfills the righteous commands of God for us. And it is the spirit who strengthens us to walk in the ways of the Lord. It is God's work and we receive this by grace through faith. Think of what Peter writes in chapter 1 of his first letter and I'll close with these words. not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God is holy, and he has made his people holy through the precious blood of his Son. So let us strive in the strength of God to live in holiness. Let's pray. Father God, once again we recognise your design and plan for the human race and the wonder of the covenant of marriage between man and wife. This has been highlighted today as we reflected upon the types of relationships that do not fit with your plan. And moreover, they do not fit because of your nature, of your holiness, your infinite transcendence and moral purity. Father, help us to hold together properly all your attributes. Let us never try and segment you, but recognise that you're both loving and holy. And as such, we cannot determine ourselves what is right and wrong. But Father, ultimately, help us by the power of your Spirit. And we pray indeed for those in our community that by the power of your Spirit, you would help people to understand we can never meet your standards by ourselves but that you have acted in grace and mercy through your Son, the Lord Jesus, the Righteous One, that all who trust in him will be saved and declared righteous and holy for you. In his name we pray. Amen.